Hi, and welcome to Resurrection Church, where Dr. Joseph G. Matera is the senior pastor and presiding bishop. We are committed to serving our community and the community abroad. We pray that the word you are about to hear will be a blessing to your life and that you allow the Holy Spirit to open your heart and receive what the Lord is speaking to you. Good morning, everybody. How many would rather be here than the best hospital in Brooklyn? Let me see your hands. All right. We're excited that we come together weekly, and many of us come together more often than weekly in our small groups, in our prayer gatherings online, and then in person once a month. And I want to just encourage you all to come and make sure you bring people who don't know the Lord. Um, uh, this guy has a prophetic gift. His name is Prophet Fernay from Colombia, and it, you'll never see anything like this, legitimate, like you've never seen. He'll tell people their names, the name of their children, tell them the call of God in their life. Um, it's going to be this next Sunday, and then Monday night and Tuesday night, and he told me that he moves even more powerfully with people who don't know the Lord, uh, and because it's more of an evangelistic kind of thing as well, so make sure you bring people out. Also, uh, before I start, I want to remind all of you that we did take vision fund pledges and there are cards right uh, in front of you in the, on, where the Bible is on the bottom of the chair. So just take a minute to make sure you see those cards. If you haven't made a vision plan, fund pledge, uh, we encourage you to do that. It keeps our future going. It, it's an investment in our future as a church, investment in the kingdom of God. And then, of course, many practical things that we need to do to keep up the building and for planning churches and different things that we're planning on doing. So you could also go online and do that. So right in the front of, uh, in the back of the, the chair in front of you is that vision fund card. And then I wanted to call up my spiritual daughter, Sandra Alcade, before I started. Is Sandra here? All right, Sandra. So just come up here for a minute. And I'm so proud of her. She sat under a lot of our classes in the last 15 years uh, when we teaching on the kingdom of God and things like biblical worldview. And she was very provoked to become a lawyer. And she became an assistant uh, to the uh, assistant uh, district attorney in the Bronx for many years. She's serving in a nonprofit and the school that she went to for her law degree, which is Regent University, has just called her, interviewed her, and she's going to move there in Virginia to be a law professor. So we're excited. We're so proud of her. And, um, yeah, she's our second spiritual daughter to go to Regent and get a law degree. Cindy Meeks is the, the other one. And. Uh, just did incredible things uh, as well. But so we want to pray for her. She's going to be moving in a few weeks. I wanted to be the one to pray for her. So I wanted to make sure it was when I was preaching next week, we have a guest speaker, so it wouldn't have fit. So uh, I think you're moving in the next, uh, by, by before April, I'm guessing, right? Before April 1st. Before April 1st. So let's stretch forth our hands. Father, we thank you so much for Sandra. We're so proud of her. So proud of the call of God in her life. So proud of the way she has pursued her calling and representing the poor, the needy, 
um, uh, being an as- assistant district attorney. Uh, you're raising her up in a mighty way. Thank you that she's now going to be a great mentor and influence on the next generation of lawyers, of people in government, people uh, who will be involved in the political world, in the law arena. And uh, Lord, we thank you for protecting her. We thank you that her move will be smooth. We thank you that her finances will be what is more than is more than enough to, for the move and for uh, everything that you've called her to do. We pray you just grace her with the right church out there, with the right connections and the right friends and the right circle of people that will be a strength and a support to her. And Father, we're just so proud that that our church had a small part in helping to shape and, and mold her thinking and her uh, motivation for what you're going to use her to do for many, many years to come. We give you the praise and the glory and the honor for her life. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow. I love you. I'm so proud of you. And her brother, who was part of our church many years, was also discipled here, and he's actually getting a master's degree in government from Regent. So, yeah, what a great blessing that family has been. So, Lord, we pray that you give us your wisdom and understanding as we continue in the passages that we find in the second epistle to the Corinthian church. Thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so if you could open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Last week we saw how God used Paul to raise money to support the poor churches in Jerusalem and gave us amazing biblical principles for sowing and reaping. Um, And as was mentioned by Pastor Millie last week, for those who don't think finances are important, we see that Paul only wrote one chapter on love, but there's two whole chapters devoted to giving financially because Jesus said where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. That's one of the major ways uh, God um, is able to see how much we love him by how much we invest in his kingdom. Even Jesus had people following him who poured into him financially. Believe it or not, you don't believe me, go to Luke chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. And there were people who followed him who just supported him financially. So if God the Son needed that, how much more do we as a church need to do that? So moving on, we see that this epistle is the most personal of all of the epistles of Paul. I've spent a lot of time studying this because um, in many ways my model for ministry has been Paul for the things I've been called to do. And so I've had to read this over and over again to understand some of the things I may go through or uh, other people go through in order to follow Jesus and it's, it's, it shows that Christianity is messy. It shows that the church is messy. Human nature is very complex, and things don't always go the right way. And 
the things that Paul had to go through were mind-blowing. Uh, and we see that he jumps from one subject to the next. It wasn't meant to be like what we would call a systematic study of the Scripture. He was just pouring his heart out. I mean, did you ever get in a place in your life where you had to be defensive, where you had to explain yourself? You had to almost, uh, you know, there was a, a, a false narrative about you. And we see here that it's, it's, it's actually possible, even with the greatest of all people, someone like Paul, who outside of Jesus was probably the most influential person church has seen in 2,000 years, and yet there were people who gave caricatures of him that was so misleading and so wicked and so evil. And so he throws hints about it here and there up until this point, but now he's starting to get really pointed in explaining what's going on. In chapter 11, we're going to see even more uh, about how he had to defend himself. And even in his defense, some of it was even sarcastic. Um, he brought up points that they made about him to make a point that was true. And he was almost letting them have their narrative while at the same time bringing out the truth. And we're going to find how he brought out the truth. Verse 1, I myself, Paul, am pleading with you. He was in a situation in a church where so many people were attacking him, so-called super apostles, that he had to plead with people that he brought to Christ. He had to plead with them, not because he was trying to keep their church, but to, uh, not, to keep his reputation, but because he was trying to keep the church intact. He was trying to protect it from wolves and, and false leaders. So he's pleading with them, but he was grounded by the character of Christ. He wasn't being vindictive. He wasn't being uh, uh, filled with uh, loss of temper and rage and bitterness. We see how in everything we do, even when we're under attack, we have to be grounded in the character of Jesus Christ. It's not just about the ministry of Jesus Christ. It's not just about evangelism. It's not just about planting churches, but it's also being like Jesus. That's the highest call we have, is to be like Christ. So here he is in the midst of his uh, onslaught, the onslaught of his that his opponents directed toward, towards him. And he said, I, Paul, am pleading with you, but how? By the meekness, or in the meekness, or humility and gentleness of Christ. He's able to keep his composure because he was grounded in the character of Jesus, and that was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Nobody could be like Jesus outside of the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he was able to carry on this dialogue, this conversation, write this letter, and continue in the ministry because of the meekness and humility and gentleness of Jesus. He didn't want to tear these people up. He wanted to try to reach them. And now he gets into sarcasm. And in his sarcasm, he is relating what they say about him. It's, it's pretty cool. He says, who, he's talking about himself, in presence I am lowly among you, but being absent I am bold towards you. They were saying that you talk tough with your letters, but when you are in person, 
you're just some little guy. You have no power, no presence. You'll see that later on. So he was bringing out that sarcasm. Yeah, I'm lowly now, um, but now I'm going to be bold because I'm absent, being sarcastic. And then he says, but I beg you that when I am present, I may not have to be bold with the confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. So basically, that's a subtle warning. If I have to be tough, I'm going to be tough, right? And uh, here's the guy who dragged Christians out of their homes before, they was, before his conversion, and he forced thousands to either uh, denounce Christ or get killed. We see that in Acts chapter 8 and 9. So he couldn't have been a really weak person physically because the guy had some kind of nerve in what he was doing. He was basically a terrorist, a persecutor. But that's what they were saying about him. And he's saying, I don't want to be bold when I'm with you. I want you to get it right before I come so I don't have to be strong and tough. And then he says, these... These people he calls against some who think that we walk according to the flesh. So what he's saying is these people are using fleshly tactics to have their way in the church. And he's thinking, they're thinking that he's, they're going to get him to respond in the flesh, that they're like him. But he started off this part of the epistle by saying, no, I'm walking in the meekness and gentleness of Christ. You're not going to pull me. You're not going to bait me. The enemy always tries to bait us to become like we used to be, right? Uh, he tries to bait us to act in the flesh, to go to our default mode before he knew Christ or be, before we're you know, walking with Christ. And he's saying, these people think I'm walking in the flesh. And they basically were walking in the flesh, which means they were manipulative, they were conniving, they were slandering, they were lying, they were using false narratives, false caricatures and pictures of him. They were uh, trying to put bad motives in him. So this is all under the category of walking in the flesh. This is what they were doing to Paul. And he was saying, you think I'm walking in the flesh. I'm not walking in the flesh. I'm not going to be like you. And it's, it's really uh, interesting how in human nature, when people are a certain way, especially when they have a certain amount of wickedness in their life that they've given into, they actually think everyone else is like them. It says in Titus chapter 1, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are perverse, all things are perverse. And they were thinking because they tried to get influence and have their way through manipulation, for those of you who understand uh, politics and history, it's, like, it's called the Machiavellian way. You know, you just basically manipulate people, you lie, you, the, the end justifies the means, and that's what they were doing to have the power in the church. And so Paul's saying, okay, you're walking like this, and you think I'm going to walk like that, but I'm not. So now he gives us a snapshot of how he survived all this. And I'll tell you the truth. I have had a walk in what I'm about to read my whole life in order to make it as a Christian, as a leader, as a pastor. 
Um, and uh, even in some of my own personal challenges, my wife could bear witness with some of them uh, when the enemies really attacked me. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, now he's not talking about the way he lives. He's talking about the fact that we have a physical body. We live in a five-sense, three-dimensional world. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not make war according to the flesh. In other words, I'm not going to resort to this manipulation that you're doing. I don't, you know, as we sang the song, I don't battle the way you do. I don't take up arms the way you do. And uh, he said, so we don't walk in the same way that you do. He says, though we live in the flesh, we do not walk according to the flesh. Why? Because, quite frankly, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or not fleshly. But they're mighty in God. And this might enables us to pull down strongholds. Now, what does he mean by strongholds? Interesting. Sometimes we think about, some of you understand the term spiritual warfare. It was an old term. Some of you may not understand it. But basically, it had to do with demonic attacks and things that we were doing in prayer to pull down strongholds. And what he is saying is the primary stronghold is we have to cast down arguments. We have to cast down every thought, all reasoning, all imaginations that come against the knowledge of God. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So first, what does he mean before I get into personal application? What he's talking about is he uses the truth of the word of God as his primary weapon to dislodge their lies. He brings out into the light, A, what they're doing wrong, and B, the truth of Christ, the way Jesus lived, the truth of the gospel, the power of the gospel. As you present that, instead of focusing on what the devil is doing all the time, instead of focusing on what people are saying about you, instead of focusing about slander, instead of focusing on the flesh, focus on the truth, is what he's saying. If you present the truth while they're trying to manipulate and use a false narrative, as he preached the simple truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, it brought out the lies and it showed the difference between he, his actions and their actions. Isn't that powerful? So God doesn't need anyone to defend himself. Do you know how the Bible opens up? It doesn't try to come up with proof of the existence of God. You notice that? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. In other words... He assumed, hey, I don't have to prove anything to you. I'm God. I created everything. My God. And that's how we have to be. Just don't focus on what the devil is doing. There's some people always focusing on the devil, focusing on demons, and this people are saying this. Forget about it. Don't worry about that. Preach the truth. Live right. Let your actions show what is real and what is not. And the truth of the gospel is so powerful. 
that it subjugates every other thought, every other ideology, philosophy, lie, false narrative, worldview, framework, whatever it is you want to call it. The power of God is in the gospel. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for in it is the power of God for all who believe, right? And, and so, but we also know that he meant to show us how he made it through all this. Basically, again, reading this, the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly. They're not manipulation. They're not uh, based on slander and all the evil ways the enemy works through people. They're not carnal, but mighty in God to pull down the strongholds. Again, what are the strongholds? It's arguments. It's reasonings. It's even logic that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And he had to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So here we see an amazing way Paul was able to survive. And I'll talk about myself here too, how I've made it, and the only way you're going to make it. First, the only way to know what is tr- the difference between what is true and false is you've got to have the knowledge of God. You have to know the knowledge of God. You have the knowledge of God personified in Christ by knowing him and by knowing his word. To the extent that you know his word, to that extent will you know what is right and wrong. It tells us in the prophet Hosea that my people are destroyed because of a lack of knowledge. It's Hosea chapter 3 verse 4. So that even God's people get destroyed if they don't know the book. Because even though the devil has already been defeated at the cross, he operates on deception and lies. And to the extent that you're ignorant of this book, to that extent does he take advantage of your ignorance. And the warfare, you might think is physical, or you might think it's, you know, just spiritual, but it primarily manifests itself in your mind. He calls the strongholds opinions, thoughts, another translation, imaginations, reasonings that come against you. And as you understand the word of God, you will know when those thoughts are not from you or not from God, but from the devil. And when you understand they're emanating from the evil one, from a dominion uh, that is a minion of the devil, a demon or some, some sort of spirit that is attacking you, you realize, wait a minute, what does the Bible say? This is not from God. And what he said is, I take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. He doesn't just sit there and allow the devil to mess with his head. He uses the word of God even as Jesus did when Satan was tempting him in the wilderness And Satan would say, uh, uh, command these stones to be made bread. And Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Uh, Then he said, oh, all right, well, you're going to use scripture. I'm going to use scripture. The devil quoted part of Psalm 91. And he said, why don't you throw yourself off this temple? Because, you see, Jesus said, it is written. Now he says, because it is written. So the devil knows the Bible even more than you do. 
He took the Bible out of context. He quoted Psalm 91 and he said, throw yourself down because it is written that the angels of God will protect you, right? They'll bear you up in, in, your, in their hands lest you dash your foot against a stone. He quoted Psalm 91. Well, Jesus then came back at him and quoted Deuteronomy chapter 4 and said, it is also written, you shall not test the Lord your God. Jesus needed the Bible to defeat the devil, and he was God in the flesh. How much more do we need to know the Bible? So he was able to thwart the attacks of the enemy against his mind, and the enemy was trying to get him to act in presumption or to do something he shouldn't have done. He was able to thwart him because of his vast knowledge of the word. And he used the word as a sword, as an offensive weapon. It wasn't just defensive, but then he quoted it at the enemy to get him to flee. We see that in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, it says that the sword of the Lord, as if you were a Roman soldier with the whole armor of God, the sword of the Lord is the word of God. Everything else is defensive, but that is the offense. So to the extent that you know the word, to that extent will you be able to deal with the attacks in your mind. And it also is just being with God, knowing God, knowing his ways as you, it's not just Bible memorization, it's, it's knowing God's character, knowing his ways by not only reading the Bible, but walking with him and praying and Allowing his character, as Paul said, the meekness and gentleness of Christ is how he act. Allow yourself to become more like Jesus every day. So the more you know God's ways, the more you know what the enemy is doing. And the more you're not going to fall to it. I don't even bother. The enemy doesn't even bother tempting me with the things he tempted me the last, uh, you know, first year or two of my salvation. But he tries to get me with other things, right? So he is very manipulative, but you need to know the word. And so what he said is, Paul said, what he does is he casts down imaginations and every thought that comes against the knowledge of God. Now, he does that through the preaching and bringing the truth out to the church. He casts down those imaginations, the manipulation, the lies, by telling the church the truth, by preaching the gospel. But he also does that with himself. Everybody has to do that in order to survive. And uh, I remember, you know, there were times when I got attacked, like, I mean, I knew it was demonic. I remember one time we were first married, and all of a sudden, I'm, I'm laying in bed, and all of a sudden, a spirit of fear came on me, like, out of nowhere. Wasn't even, I didn't watch a horror movie. Nothing happened. Just came on me like this incredible sense of terror and, and fear, and the only thing I was able to do was start quoting the word of God and reading the Bible, and then eventually it left. But if I didn't know to do that, I don't know what, what would have happened. I remember about 15 years ago, I was driving to minister to pastors uh, in Buffalo, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I'm driving, and, and I can't even articulate how I felt. I felt like I wasn't protected by the car I literally felt like I was out in the street driving 60 miles an hour. And I was filled with fear where I started shaking uncontrollably. I had to pull the car over, walk out 
on the highway, you know, I, I found a, a shoulder, I found something, and I had to walk around for like 10 or 15 minutes quoting the Bible, believing God, and I knew the enemy didn't want me to show up to this meeting, and I just was walking and walking, and I thought, man, I don't know, maybe just I had a chemical reaction to food, I don't know what it was, and I got in the car, and it was still there, and I had a choice, go back, forget about this trip, give in to the devil, or keep going, and I knew that that was a turning point in my life, that if I would have drove back home, and it would have been hard, but I was only like 20 minutes away from my house, and I had a six-hour drive ahead to Buffalo, it would have totally destroyed my ministry because I couldn't travel. I would have needed someone else to drive me everywhere I went. And basically I said, if I die, I die. I felt like I was going to die. And I'm just trusting in you, Jesus. And I drove in the right lane. I didn't try, you know, I drove where I knew I could pull over if I had to. And I was literally shaking. And I drove six hours. And I just kept quoting the word of God, trusting God, and believing that God called me to preach. That means he called me to drive. He called me to use, you know, he called me to, to go different places. He called me not to give in because if I gave in to that, it would have become bigger. Next thing you know, I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to get, uh, you know, on a plane or I wouldn't be able to get on an elevator. I wouldn't be able to, in other words, the devil doesn't stop there. He would have robbed my liberty. He would have robbed my mind. He would have destroyed me psychologically. And I just said, if I die, I die. That's the only thing that kept me going. And I just drove. And I made it there. And this thing went on for about a year and a half on and off. Where I was attacked in my mind while I was driving. And I basically, it wouldn't happen right away, but after 15 to 20 minutes... And to this day, I don't understand what it was. I just believe it was a demonic attack. And if I didn't know God or didn't know the word or thought, you know, maybe I'm not supposed to be driving. Maybe the devil would have been able to convince me, hey, just don't ever drive again. Don't worry. Take the way, easy way out. It would have totally changed my life. I remember another time, the first time I got in an airplane after I got saved, and my wife and I were going on a 14-hour trip to Moscow to preach the gospel. And uh, I had, as soon as I got on the plane, oh, no, no, actually it was, um, we were going to Texas. It was JetBlue, I remember. As soon as I got on the plane, I got filled with such uh, terror from being closed in and not being in control that I immediately started weeping instantly from the fear and the terror. And I was walking out. I was going to get off the plane. And my wife said, Joe. That was Moscow. That was Moscow. Oh, okay. She said, Joe, do not do it. Do not do it. Just trust God. Just, Joe, just get on. Don't worry. Trust God. By faith and not by feelings, I went to my seat petrified and just quoted scripture and trusted God and believed God. And because I didn't give in, and thank God my wife encouraged me, it left after five or ten minutes. And I've been fine ever since. 
going on planes, trains, automobiles, everything. But the battle is mental, psychological. And if I didn't know the word, if I didn't have a deep sense of the word, my God, I would have been dead meat. I would have been like a hermit hanging out of my house all day. I wouldn't have come out. It would have went to agoraphobia. It would have went to, you know, the, the enemy doesn't stop. You understand? If you give him a little bit, you know, it's like the devil will show you a little pornography, right? He'll say, don't worry. You can look at this woman in dress. No big deal. Next thing you know, a little more. Then you become addicted. Next thing you know, you've seen prostitutes. You don't want to give in to anything. And that's what Paul is saying. That's what kept him going. You think it was easy for him? It was psychological warfare. Now I get on a plane, I don't think anything of it. I mean, I'm turbulent. This stuff. I remember one funny story. I got on a plane once. It was a propeller plane. And uh, if any of you went on a propeller plane, it's worse than the Hercules ride in, uh, what is it, uh, Magic Kingdom or something. I don't know. But... The turbulence is crazy, going up and then landing. And I got on a plane, and there's this guy, young guy. He saw me reading the Bible, and he said, oh, you're a Christian? I said, yeah, yeah, I'm a pastor. I'm going to do a conference. Well, I'm an evangelist. God uses me powerfully. He's bragging about what a great man of God he is. He's bragging about how God uses him in great power of miracles and all this. Okay, oh, wow, that's cool, that's cool. And... When the plane took off and it started going, trying to get steam to get up there, he he started going, "Ah, ah, ah." the whole plane smelled like puke. Almost everybody was throwing up and I'm next to this guy laughing my head off. And I'm saying, man, what a great man of God you are. Man of faith and power. Well, that probably would have been me if I didn't face my fears. And so Paul gives us the secret sauce. You need to memorize this. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 to 5. The strongholds are not your disease. It's your mind. It's not your finances. It's the way you think. If you have a poverty mentality, that's the problem. If you have self-doubt, that's the problem. If you have low self-esteem, that's the issue. It's the way the enemy tries to shape us. And sometimes he shapes us not just through direct attacks, through movies you watch and music you listen to, or through the narrative of media, right? So there's certain ways the enemy wants us to think. And, um, and so the enemy works through culture, not just through individual attacks. You need to understand that. So there's a group think that Paul is also talking about. There's a narrative he wants, the, the enemy works through, sometimes even political leaders and community leaders. He wants you all to think a certain way about, you know, politics or health or whatever. And so there is a warfare that's going on. So the devil doesn't come out with a red suit and a pitchfork. He hides behind philosophies, ideologies, worldviews, and people, and powerful people. And he operates through them, as we see in Scripture in many places. Uh, and so this is so vital for you to really understand. We pull down the strongholds 
that are against the knowledge of God. If you don't know this, you're a sitting duck. And that's why you need to know Christians. If you're a new Christian, you need to constantly be with mature Christians who know the word because the devil's going to take advantage of your ignorance. Now, you could be saved for 20 years and still be a baby Christian. I've, I've known people saved 20, 30 years, and they still are repeating their first year 20 times because they don't grow. They're not... You have to be intentional. You have to be consistent about reading this Bible, about praying, about setting aside time with God. And so there's literally arguments that come against us, and we have to cast it down based on the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity. That was for himself, but that was also for others by preaching the truth. And then he says in verse uh, 7, do you look according to outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ's, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ's, so are we Christ's. We belong to Christ too. And so he's bringing out some of the arguments that he had to deal with. They were saying they were of Christ, implying that he wasn't of Christ. And then he said in verse 8, even if I should boast some more, somewhat about my authority, which the Lord gave us to build you up and not for your destruction, I am not ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. Now he quotes what they say about him. See, he's bringing out the truth. He's being sarcastic, but he's also showing he knows the lies that are being spoken of him. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when we are absent, so we will be also indeed when we are present. So you see how he had to deal with warfare from false leaders people affecting the church, probably against his own mind. You know, how many know this, is, this life is warfare, right? There's never going to be a time when it's going to be incredibly easy. You know, people go from one job to the next, thinking the next job is going to be better. Well, it might even be worse. It might be jumping from the frying pan to the fire, you know, you divorce your wife to get remarried, you might marry someone a hundred times worse. You uh, go from, I remember one guy told me, uh, you know, he was going to a certain church because they were, they didn't have any warfare, they were strong. And I was just on the phone with that pastor who was pulling his hands out of his head because of all the issues between the Sunday school director, the choir director, and his wife. And I didn't say that to the person, but I was laughing. Uh, he thinks he's going to the perfect church without warfare. Meanwhile, he doesn't know what's going on, right? And this is typical of life. Everyone of your families has distinct challenges. You have challenges in your own mind. You have things that you're dealing with that no one else knows, right? All of us have these things. That's why we need each other. That's why we need Jesus. That's not why we need to stick together. And that's why your lack of Bible knowledge will be supplanted by our knowledge of the Bible or our gifts. That's why we need to have community. And 
what Paul was experiencing was a very typical attack. Slander against a pastor, slander against church leaders, slander against shepherds is very prevalent uh, at times because the devil knows if you strike the shepherd, the sheep are scattered. So that's why you got to be careful what you believe about people, whether it's church people, whether it's political leaders, whether it's secular. When I hear these accusations about a leader, I want to know, was there a witness or were there more than one person had the same experience? You know, because anyone could go on Facebook and lie about you. And what, are you just going to believe it because someone's saying it? Then there's no protection. So Paul had to deal with all of this stuff. And these people were trying to get them to deal with outward appearance. I don't know what that meant, that they were coming in as superstars they came in with great theater, and great uh, looks, and uh, you know, great boisterous speech. Uh, who knows what it meant? But Paul, he comes in humility. He doesn't have a show. What you see is what you get. Paul didn't need to smoke the whistles. He didn't need the uh, elaborate attire and uh, entrance. He was just being himself. And these people were going by outward appearance, by lies, by slander, by all this stuff. And then he says in verse 12, we dare not classify ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. But they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. And so these people were commending themselves, meaning they were bragging about themselves. They were um, basically legitimizing what they were doing by, there was like a faction, a group of them, and they were basically saying, hey man, we're the real deal. We are the ones that God has chosen. And uh, we, we have God on our side. God is with us. So they're comparing themselves and commending themselves among themselves. Paul said, I would never dare do that. They are not wise when they do that. And then he says, verse 13, we, however, instead of comparing ourselves with ourselves, instead of commending ourselves, this is what we're going to do. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which includes you. What is he saying here? Let them do all the boasting and the bragging they want. Here's the proof of my ministry. Your, this church is here. It exists. Amen. You are the proof of my ministry. You are my fruit. If God wasn't with me, there wouldn't be a Corinthian church, basically Paul is saying. So these people didn't have the power to create or plant their own church, but they would try to infiltrate a church already created to gain followers because they didn't have the goods themselves. They didn't have the gifting. So they were trying to rob and steal from Paul what God used him to plant, uh, the fruit that he had, the uh, authority that he had. They were trying to rob from Paul because they couldn't do it themselves. Do you see that? So he's saying, my authority extends to you, meaning the proof that God is with me is, hey, this church was planted. You got saved. I preached the gospel. God is doing miracles among you. Are you seeing the reasoning here? 
And he says, for we, not, uh, we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you, for it was to you that we came with the gospel. Not boasting. We don't brag about things beyond measure that is in other men's labors. These people were bragging about their calling, their power, their super apostleship based on what Paul planted, based on Paul's labors. Paul is saying, I don't brag about anybody's labors. As a matter of fact, and we'll see this in a minute, I don't even go in a region where the gospel's already been preached because they only had a few apostles at that point. So the way God lined it up was if Paul was in a certain city planning, the other apostles would go to another area so they wouldn't overlap so the gospel can be diffused and reach as many people as possible. So Paul says here, I don't go, uh, I don't labor in other men's labors, and I believe that even as you are increased, we'll be able to preach the gospel in other regions. So Paul was depending on the health of that church for him to bring the gospel beyond that city. He wasn't depending on some superstar evangelist to come in to do a crusade. His method of evangelism was through empowering the church. That's the biblical model. You are the evangelist. You are the ones who are to bring the gospel. You are the ones who are to share the testimony of what Jesus has done. I don't care if you just got saved last week, man. You are God's evangelist. Freely you have received, freely give. What God has done for you, that's all you got to do is tell other people. Matter of fact, I remember I was only a Christian about six months, and I had such a burden to share the love of God. Here I was, a professional musician, long hair, uh, just, you know, one of the rockers and, and all that. And I would just go on the trains and say, excuse me, I have a testimony. And people would say, what? Who is this? I'd say, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a preacher, but I just want to tell you what God has done for me. And the power of God would fall on the N train, on the R train, on the 1 train, on the L train. I mean, then we went on the Staten Island Ferry. I got bored. We're going from train to train. The Spirit of God was falling. People were getting saved. And then I go on the ferry, and next thing you know, I'm giving my testimony. I was only saved six or eight months. I probably won more people to Christ then than I'm doing now. With not even one-tenth of the Bible knowledge I have now. All you got to do is tell people what God did for you. You are God's evangelist. And so Paul was depending on the church to be the evangelist. And he said, I'm not going to go beyond you until you get it together. Because you're the ones I'm using. You're the ones I depend on. It's not about the superstar apostle as opposed to what he was dealing with. He was saying, no, I'm walking in humility and I pleading with you, and I want you to get it right for the sake of the gospel so we could bring the gospel beyond the city of Corinth. And then he says in verse 17, uh, well, first he says in 16, we want to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not boast in another man's fear of accomplishment. And so what he's also saying here is your lane or your assignment is determined by a sphere. 
Now, what is your sphere? If you read this and read other passages, your sphere is where you live, basically. You don't have to pray about who you're supposed to reach. It's your friends, your family, your co-workers, your neighbors. Your sphere, according to Paul's definition of the sphere of authority, is based on your geography. And, and so you don't have to be a rocket science. You don't have to pray and fast for five weeks. Oh, God, who am I supposed to preach the gospel to? Duh! <laughs> Who's your next-door neighbor? Who are your family members? Who are you working with? That's what Paul is saying here. And even people called to plant churches, when they come to me for advice and they're praying about you know, what to do, I say, the first thing you need to know what is the city God has called you to? It all starts with your region. That's how God determines spheres and measures of influence. In Acts chapter 17, he said that God determines our boundaries and the times and seasons in which we are living. Even our birth is connected to our assignment. I used to feel bad. Oh, God, I feel guilty because I live in America, and you see these poor people in Bangladesh. And then when I read that passage, it was like, wait a minute. God chose me to live in New York. He chose me to be. So I better use my influence. I better use the bounty I have. I better use the blessings of America wisely. Not only to bless people like that, but to, to, to live a life worthy of the benefits I have. So God has determined where we live, what year we were born, who our parents are, our ecosystem, our environment. And then he says later on in that passage in Acts 17, so that we might feel after God. For in him we live and breathe and have our being. That's deep. Allow me to be discursive for a second. I just can't help it. Not part of the context. When it says that in him we live and move and have our being, that means I'm going to blow your mind here. How many of you have ever seen the movie The Matrix? Let me see your hands. If you haven't, you've got to, you've got to watch the first one. The second and third one, I don't know about I can't even understand what I'm watching half the time, but the first one, I understand it. What God is saying in Acts 17, in him we live and move and have our being, is that the whole universe is created in the matrix of God. Time and space are in God. It's not that he is subservient to time and space. It is actually in God. The whole universe is his temple, basically. I could go into that for a long time, and I'm going to stop there. I'm just throwing that out for some of you, some of you philosophers or whatever. But the point is that in God's sovereignty, it's not an accident you're here. And so there may be more specifics that God wants to bring you. That's fine. But, again, you don't have to be a NASA engineer to figure out who you're supposed to reach because God puts you where you are at the time you are, 
at the ethnicity you have, the people group, all of that. And then he ends that statement by saying, but he who boasts or he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Meaning even though I'm walking with God, even though I'm legit, even though when I preach you could drop the mic, even though God is really with me and the proof is God used me to plant this church, Paul's saying to the Corinthians. Even then, I have no right to boast. He that glories, let him glory in the Lord. As he says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you weren't given? If you were given it, why do you boast as if you weren't given it? Everything we have, even our personality, our gifts, our abilities, all come from God. Even though God works with us, we're co-creators and partners with him. He doesn't force us to do what we do, so we have to be obedient. It's hard work. Yes, of course. But don't boast because God is the one who gave you the capacity, the gifts you have. So let him who glories or boasts glory in the Lord, for it is not he who commends or boasts about himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord boasts about. When I minister, when I live, and I hope the same for the worship team, I hope it's the same for everybody. At the end of the day, you have to minister to an audience of one. I don't care what people say about you. Jesus even said, woe to you when all men speak good of you. My goal is not to be a social media influencer. My goal, my sole goal is to love God, to know God, and to make him known. And if I don't please God, it doesn't matter who else I please. However, if I put God first and please him, then whatever is second in my life will not be hurt. Matter of fact, if I keep the main thing the main thing, then all primary things will be taken care of. And so, if you are slandered like Paul, people are trying to usurp your authority, whether it's your business, doesn't have to be a church, it could be your family, it could be politics. There's more politics in your family than probably in the White House. People posturing themselves. God help it, when someone dies, what happens with the money, right? That's what manifests. My God, if you're not grounded in the Lord, whoo, if you're worried about how many likes you get on Facebook, please, please, please. When people value themselves based on how many likes and how many loves and how many comments or whatever, please, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, live a life pleasing to him. It doesn't mean that other people won't like you or you won't have influence on social media. It doesn't mean that. But if you put the main thing, the main thing, if you put the kingdom of God first, whatever you put second won't be hurt and you will fulfill your calling. And if it, part of your calling is to be a social media influencer, to be famous, have a great platform, it'll happen. But let, not be, let that not be what you're looking for. So we're going to pray, and 
I hope you learned something today about how to survive in the midst of warfare. The warfare comes in all shapes and sizes. To quote the immortal Winston Churchill when England, London was being bombed by Nazi Germany, incessant bombings every night. He would get on the radio and said, never give in, never give in, never quit, never give up. That's all I could say to you. Hang on. Sometimes we're hanging on by a thread, but don't quit. And, and when you're going through real difficult times, I know what I've done. I listen to the book of Psalms constantly because it reveals how God could be present in the midst of all of our emotions, even depression. 25% of the Psalms had to do with somebody who was really depressed, felt hopeless. But even Psalm 22, quoting Jesus, prophesying about Jesus who was to come. It says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me, right? That's how it starts off. But then he talks about, but you inhabit the praises of your people. Even in our hopeless state of times, praise the Lord. Seek his face. He will never let you down. He will keep you going. So let's, uh, let's close in prayer by standing. And I believe some of us need prayer. Is there anybody here who needs prayer? I'm going to ask the leaders to come up at this time. The people who help us pray, come up. Some of you are battling in your mind, spiritual warfare. Some of you are going through a lot. I mean, I think all of us are going through a lot, the whole world, the last two and a half years. But if you need prayer, we want to invite you to come up, and we love you. We're here for you. We're a church that cares. The, the fact of the matter is, if you really love God, you love people. You can't say you love God if you don't love people. You say you love God who cannot be seen. How could you say you love God if you can't love those that you see? So we're here for you. So I'm going to close in prayer. Amen. We pray that you were blessed by this word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at resurrectionchurchofny.com or give us a call at 718-436-0242. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at reschurchnyc. Take care and God bless.